Well, hey, welcome back and uh, grab your Bible and head on over to Job chapter 15. And if you received at the beginning of our study, there's only one back there now, but if you received, we gave you an outline. There's one on the back table. If you need more, we could copy some more. And you want to take it with you. It's really good. Um, we're in this place, Job 4 through 37, where Job and his three friends go through three cycles of conversations. And we are today into the second cycle, and we're going to try and study what Eliphaz and, uh, says to him for the second time, and Bildad says to him for the second time, and Job's response. That's where we are, chapters 15 through 17. Listen to this. Just this week as I was preparing for today, I just started writing down what I was learning and what we were talking about as we've been going through this. So if you're a a record keeper, a note taker, you might want to jot these things down. First of all, I want you to know, you, you realize this, right? We're talking about Suffering that happens not because of somebody doing something wrong, necessarily. Here, we recognize the first couple chapters of Job, and we see that God has allowed Satan access to Job's life, and Job was called a blameless man. It wasn't that he was sinless, you know that, but he did the sacrifices, and he kept short accounts with God. So we've been dealing with a guy who doesn't have some past sin in his life that he's being punished for. Now, I want you to get your thinking caps on. Do you really believe that God has paid for your sins, past, present, and future? If you do, then God doesn't punish us for a sin in our past, yet sometimes... Sin in our past jams us up, doesn't it? Everybody tracking? And we know, in addition to that, there are the things that you do in this life, you reap what you sow. If you sow to the Spirit, you're going to reap spiritual things, but if you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap fleshly things. And I always use the example of drinking. Uh, If I go out on Friday night and drink 20 beers and four shots and get in the car and pray to the Lord. Lord, oh, just help me get home and don't hurt myself or anybody. I mean, come on, folks. You reap what you sow. Right? But in this particular case, well, and, and also God sends some uh, storms and tribulations and trials into our life to make us more Christ-like. It's not for punishment. Sometimes God just needs to get our attention, doesn't he? Sometimes God demonstrates his power through our trials and suffering, and sometimes it's to develop our character. And you could look at 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 9, and they are all revealed right there. Get our attention, demonstrate His power, develop our character. So there's that. And then also, the Christian can't be possessed by the enemy of our souls, but the Christian sure has fiery darts shot at them, and usually it's in the battle right there, right? Because you know the Scripture, like 
this one. God will not leave you nor forsake you. And yet, sometimes when we're alone, we think we've been abandoned. And yet God would never do that. And what's the enemy do? He pounces on that and he starts to say things to you like, nobody loves you, you're all by yourself. When in reality, the God of all creation loves you so much that he sent his son. So we've been going through those things. Here's some things that I think we've been learning. I'm giving you the punchline before the sermon. But I think it's going to help us as we go through. Here it is. When ministering to people, we can sometimes say the right things, but not say all of the complete things that need to be said. We make a mistake of, especially when we're ministering, ministering the theology, but not connecting to a person's heart. When sometimes a person just needs to be heard and loved and 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 and. In connection with that, life is complicated. It can't be just, you know, divided up into just perfect little segments and you have all the answers. Well, sometimes the answers aren't just perfect and neat and spliced out for you and plugged in. Sometimes it's really complicated and the Lord's teaching you stuff. Does anybody feel that way? I feel that way. And so that leads me to the next one that the Lord's been putting on my heart. And Jan says, amen, it's important to listen. It's important to listen when ministering, not just gathering up all of your theological note cards so you can pound somebody with everything that you have, but sometimes you just need to listen. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, just be really aggressive in your hearing, but slow to speak. Be a great listener, but be slow to speak. Slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Boy, that's so apparent in Job, isn't it? Sometimes silence is golden, folks. You're just with people, and they need a hug. They need an I love you. They need you to repeat back what they're feeling because they're hurting so bad. They don't need, you know, five points of Calvinism versus Arminianism right now. Sometimes just silence is going, rejoicing with those who rejoice, Romans 12 tells us, and weeping with those who weep. Uh, Romans 12, 16, don't be wise in your opinions. Yes, it's good to be a great uh, divider of the word, a right divider of the word, but you know, you're not a know-it-all. None of us are, only Jesus, right? How about this one? This one's big, love the giver, not the gifts, or above the gifts. If anything's been um, uh, told to us uh, through the book of, or impressed upon us through the book of Job, it's that, is that we're to grow in loving the giver, but not just the gifts. Let me read you something. I think you should write this down, but if you can't write it down because I'm going to go through it, I'll give this to you. If people serve God only for what they get out of it, then they're not serving God at all. Want me to say that one again? If people serve God only for what they get out of it, they are not serving God at all. They are only uh, serving God by making God their servant. <laughs> their religion then is only a pious system for promoting selfishness and not for glorifying God. That's Warren Wearsby. If people serve God only for what they get out of it, then they're not serving God at all. They're only uh, serving God by making God their servant. (laughs) 
And their religion is only a pious system for promoting selfishness. And I got to tell you, if there's anything that marks the Christian church today, that's it. Just flip on your TV for five seconds and watch popular Christian television. 75% of it, bingo. What can I get? What can I get? What can I get? What do I need? What do I need? What do I need? Instead of worshiping the Lord. So I think what... One of the things here in Job is that we are to love the giver above the gifts. I want you to know this. When you watch Job, and the reason I'm giving you the punchline today first is because this is going to be apparent today. When you uh, read Job, what you gain from the sufferings of Job is a deep insight into Christ's sufferings, the loneliness the forsakenness. Now listen, tonight, watch this, the aggression that Job says God has for him. I'm going to talk about that tonight. He talks like God is out like a rabid hunter preying on prey, and Job's the uh, the prey. Now wait a minute. His soul is troubled. He shrinks from the darkness of the uh, uh, of, the, of, of the sacrifice or the sufferings. Feeling pain, living in a godless world. Does it all sound familiar? Because that's the sufferings of Christ. Isn't that interesting? How about this one? <laughs> oh, boy. Stop being so harsh and accusatory and arrogant when talking to someone in pain. And all you have to do is go read Galatians 6, 1 through 3, about how to, how to reconcile with a, an erring brother or sister. God says do it with a real tender heart. Let's stop being know-it-alls who, who do that. Trials wean us from dependence upon people and things and place us right back to the Lord. How about this one? And I want you to really pay close attention to this one. Undeserved, undeserved suffering of Job foreshadows the undeserved suffering of Christ. And his undeserved suffering, listen to this, listen, makes possible the amazing undeserved forgiveness the amazing grace of undeserved forgiveness. Are you catching that? Undeserved suffering of this righteous man foreshadows the undeserved suffering of Christ. It was undeserved. And his undeserved suffering makes possible the amazing grace of undeserved forgiveness. In other words, as one author wrote, and I'll give you the name of the author, Chris Ash, Christopher Ash. Listen, you're going to love this. Boy, this struck me today. The sufferings of Job write this down, are the cost of grace. Write that down and think about it this week. The sufferings of Job are the cost of grace. You know what? When we read this book, we get uncomfortable. Don't you get uncomfortable a little bit? And I think one of the reasons is is because we have a tendency, all of us, to live by merit more than we think we do. 
And when Job is being whatever we think he's being done to him, it makes us uncomfortable. And yet, listen, the sufferings of Job are the cost of grace. Wow. Okay, those are some of the things we're learning. Go to chapter 15. Eliphaz, who's already speaking once, speaks again. And he says this after Job has just got done with a big line or a lot of response there uh, that we looked at last time. Here's what he says. Eliphaz says, should a wise man answer with empty knowledge? (laughs) Catch what he's saying. You imagine having friends like this. And fill himself with the east wind. The more I listen to you, Job, I said it once and I'm going to say it again. You're full of hot air. You have nothing to say. Can you imagine saying to that somebody who's in pain? That's what he's saying. Should be reason uh, with unprofitable talk or by speeches with which he can do no good. Yes, you cast off fear and restrain prayer before God. For your iniquity teaches your mouth. In other words, you have a wicked heart. You have a wicked heart. And listen, you cast off fear and restrain prayer before God. If what you're saying, or the way in which you respond to us as friends who believe this theology, here's what they believe. God is good and righteous and just. God punishes wickedness, but rewards righteousness. Therefore, you, Job, must have something bad and wicked in your life because that's the only reason you're being punished. They assume something that's faulty, that suffering or all suffering is bad, and we're learning that that's not so. But what he's saying here is (laughs) you're keeping people from being devoted to you by saying these filthy lies. Wow. And your iniquity teaches your mouth. What comes out of your mouth comes from a wicked heart. You choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you and not I, Eliphaz says. Uh, Yes, your own lips testify against you. Your, Your doctrine is wrong. And it's the same old stuff he's been saying in cycle one, now here in cycle two. Are you the first man who was born? In other words, you lack experience. Or were you made before the hills? You're old as the hills. I used to say that when I was a kid. Here's where it came from. Or were you made before the hills? Have you heard the counsel of God? Do you admit or limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that is not in us? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, much older than your father. Are the consolations of God too small for you? And the words, in other words, Eliphaz is saying, you, Job, refuse God's help. He's laid it out for you, but you refuse it. Why does your heart carry you away? And what do your eyes wink at that you turn your spirit against God and let such words go out of your mouth? What is man that he should be pure? Now, here comes the true part. In fact, over in chapter 4, verses 17 through 19, Eliphaz has already said this once. 
This is some of the truth theology. What is man that he could be pure? And who is born of a woman that he could be righteous? That's so true. That is true. Right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We go our own way. There's no one righteous. No, not one. That is true, in a sense. Well, it is true. Not in a sense. It is true. If God puts no trust in his saints, verse 15, and the heavens are not pure in his sight, how much less man who is abominable and filthy? Can you imagine that? Did you see what he just called his friend? You're, You're abominable. You're filthy. You drink iniquity like water. You'd die if you didn't drink this up. That's how much you do. You you just keep drinking it up. (laughs) He accuses Job of being vile and filthy, and it's not true. How do I know it's not true? Because I know what Job 1.8 says. (laughs) Remind yourself. I'll go over there. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? Now, it doesn't mean he's a sinless person, but he keeps short accounts with God. And God has said, he walks with me and he talks with me. He's, he's upright. He he's, understands their sacrifices. And so, as much as a can, man can be, he's walking with me, and yet... Here his friends are accusing him of being vile and filthy. (laughs) And then he goes on and he talks about how God judges the wicked. Watch this. Eliphaz says in verse 17, I'll tell you, hear me, what I have seen I will declare. I know what I speak of, he says, so listen up, Job. Remember, what did we say from James? What did we read? Hey, be really aggressive or be really a great uh, hearer. Someone showed me a picture today of two ears put together makes a heart. And the middle of heart is ear. I don't know. thought it was fascinating. <laughs> you want to love somebody? Listen to them. How about that one? But I will tell you, hear me. See, he can't just stand it anymore. He's got to blast back. What I have seen, I will declare. What wise men have told, not hiding anything received from their fathers. Verse 19, to whom alone the land was given, and no alien passed among them. The wicked man writhes with pain all his days. This is just a repeat of his prior theology. And the number of years is hidden from the oppressor. Dreadful sounds are in his ears. In prosperity, the destroyer comes upon him. He doesn't believe that he'll return from darkness, for a sword is waiting for him. He wanders about for bread, saying, where is it? He has lack. He knows that a day of darkness is ready at hand. Yes, these are all true things of people who are going to go to eternal damnation. But it's not Job. God's told us. Trouble and anguish, verse 24, make him afraid. They overpower him like a king ready for battle. For he stretches out his hand against God and acts defiantly against the Almighty. In other words, Job, remember, this is you and you won't admit it. The friend says. Verse 26, running stubbornly against him with his strong embossed shield, though he has covered his face with his fatness, and made his waist heavy with fat. In other words, he's prosperous and he's, but be, 
he, he, he counted on his prosperity, and now he's going to, verse 28, dwell in desolate cities, in houses which no one inhabits, which are destined, or destined to become ruins. He will not be rich, nor will his wealth continue, nor will his possessions overspread the earth. He won't depart from darkness. The flame will dry out his branches, and by the breath of his mouth he will go away. Yes, this is true of those who are outside of the plan of God, but it's not Job again. 31, let him not trust in futile things, deceiving himself, for futility will be his reward. It will be accomplished before his time, and his branch will not be green. He will shake off his unripe grape like a vine and cast off his blossom like an olive tree for the company of hypocrites. Another, golly, man, what a friend. You're a hypocrite, Job. The company of hypocrites will be barren, and fire will consume the tents of bribery. They conceive trouble, sin, and bring forth futility. Their womb prepares deceit. How harsh. How harsh. It's sort of like in our era, or our age, this side of the cross... It's that rigid theology that likes to talk about grace but loves to bow down to merit. A a graceless theology. That's kind of what we're listening to. And I just want you to see something. Folks, listen to this. Whenever grace is shirked back from or denied... Rigidity and meanness, is that a word? And cruelty follows close behind. Did you catch that? God's grace is cutting and true. It is not wimpy, buddy. Read Titus. It fashions you and molds you into the image of Christ. And sometimes that takes chipping away at hard places, but it's never mean or mean-spirited. And we get people in the church who talk about grace, but don't live it. And we can see it in our own attitudes when we get rigid and cruel and mean. Well, what happens in response? Job goes and talks back, or responds back to his pitiless friends without pity. Job answers and says this in verse 1 of chapter 16, or now verse 2. I have heard many such things, (laughs) and you folks are miserable comforters. That's what he says. Shall words of wind have an end? In other words, could you stop it for just a little bit? Here's what Job says in this part, 1 through 14. It's kind of the first time he said it. Could you please just have some sympathy for me? Have some pity on me. Could you just listen and be kind? Is there any sympathy to be had? I also could speak as, listen, or what provokes you, verse, in the middle of verse 3, shall words of wind have an end, or what provokes you that you answer? Are you just going to say the same stuff again? I already know it's wrong, but are you going to tell me the same stuff again? Because I could... I also could speak as you do if your soul were in my soul's place. I could heap up words against you. 
and shake my head at you. Listen, listen to this part. But I would strengthen you with my mouth. If I had to do it and sit in your shoes, I would strengthen you with my mouth. Are you catching this? And the comfort of my lips would relieve your grief. Though I speak, my grief is not relieved. And if I remain silent, how am I eased? I want you to see something right there. Here's something else we learn about suffering. How about this? Who here has ever been misunderstood by a friend, backstabbed, uh, uh, been talked about behind your back? You hated it. You just would, Lord, please get this away from me. Please, I, I hate it. I can't stand it. That's what I think about. It consumes me. I want you to think about something here. Sometimes it takes misunderstandings and those sorts of situations from friends to get us to pay attention so that when you suffer, you know what to say in return. Listen to what I'm saying here. I could speak as you do if your soul were in my soul's place. It would be my natural inclination. Come on, Job, just come on. Pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. Enough crying, enough talking. Let's, we, we need to move on. One day at a time. You ever heard people say that to you? You're like, yeah, but I'm not ready to go there yet. (laughs) And he says, but here's what I would do if I was sitting over there. I'd strengthen you with my mouth. And listen, who has been more misunderstood than Job? Who's been more stabbed in the back than Job? (laughs) Yes. And sometimes it takes misunderstandings, betrayals, all those things that you go through. You're looking at a situation. You're going, I need some purpose in the pain. What's going on here? How How could you teach me anything? It's a reminder of all, those situations are reminders for you when you, the shoe's on the other foot, not to act the same way. You ever thought about that? Here it is, right here in the Bible. Verse 7, but now he has worn me out. You've made desolate all my company. You've shriveled me up. Here's what's really the worst thing, Job says. It's God's hostility or perceived hostility that's eating me up. And here's what I'm going to charge you with, God. You've shriveled me up, verse 8, and it's a witness against me. My leanness rises up against me and bears witness to my face. Apparently, whatever was happening, he became emaciated. He tears me in his wrath and hates me. He gnashes at me with his teeth. My adversary sharpens his gaze on me. And that, this is sort of true in a sense. And I mean, when you get through chapter 16, listen, folks, remember we said one of the things that we gain from reading Job is we gain uh, a deep insight into Christ's sufferings. And I submit to you right here where you see this Job is talking about the aggression that God has against him. I submit to you that this is a picture of what Christ suffered in my favorite Bible verse. He who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin so that we might have the righteousness of God. In him, what, what, is, what do you mean? You're like, what? Well, God has to pour out his wrath on sin. And at the cross, God poured it out. What Christ must have felt like, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Obviously quoting Psalm 22, but still, 
that pouring out, the darkness over the land. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? My leanness rises up, or excuse me, he tears me in his wrath and hates me. He gnashes at me with his teeth. My adversary sharpens his gaze on me. God has acted like a wild predator. They gape at me with their mouth. That's, folks, read Psalm 22. That's very similar. They strike me uh, reproachfully on the cheek. What did they do to Christ? They slapped him. They punched him. They plucked out his beard. They gathered together against me. God has delivered me to the ungodly. Are you kidding me? Pontius Pilate. And turned me, and, and others, not just him, but and turned me over to the hands of the wicked. I was at ease, but he has shattered me. He has also taken me by my neck and shaken me to pieces. He set me up for his target. Can you imagine? Can you imagine having your hands tied behind your back and, you know, somebody who's good with a bow and arrow puts you down there and just goes, poof. He set me, that's what Job has felt like. Jesus was the target of God's wrath being poured out. Get it? He pours out my gall on the ground. Are you catching this? He breaks me with wound upon wound. He runs at me like a warrior. I have sewn sackcloth over my skin and laid my head in the dust. My face is flushed from weeping, and on my eyelids is the shadow of death. Although, listen, no violence is in my hands. He reaffirms his innocence right here. And my prayer is pure. God, he's, he's making a plea now for the justice of Christ, and he, or the justice of God. And here we come, right here in the middle of uh, Job reproaching his friends. You, you remember the little crocuses that were growing up? Here comes one. Signs of life. Sign of the gospel. Here it comes. And let my cry have no resting place. Surely even now my witness is in heaven and my evidence is on high. You go, what? Look at this. Oh, earth, do not cover my blood, verse 18, and let my cry have no resting place. They, they thought that when they died, before they got buried, the blood was crying out from the dust. A lot of places in the Bible it talks about that. But look at this in verse 19. Surely, even now, my witness is in heaven. My witness is in heaven, and my evidence is on high. Now, what this is talking about in is sort of like a uh, legal uh, legal terms here in verse 19. And the word for my evidence is on high, it actually in the, in the Hebrew is my recorder. My recorder is on high. Um, and you go, well, what's a recorder? A person who's, who's taking the testimony, listen to this, and is unbiased and is, is, isn't um, uh, switching the words around. And the implication is, catch this now, that the one who is the recorder is the one who knows all things, including the stuff that's in the background of Job, that Job is blameless. In other words, Job is to the place that he just wants somebody to judge righteously, to, to be one who understands him, listen, and can sympathize with him because he's been 
backstabbed or been betrayed by friends, somebody who can sympathize with him and, and can take it down and note it and feel for him. Hmm. And he just cries it out. The first book written of the Bible in the patriarchal era doesn't have the oldest information in the Bible, but is probably the oldest book. And right there, verse 19, my recorder, I surely, even now, my witness is in heaven and my evidence is on high. I just, if somebody could just be that final arbiter, judge, who would not rewrite what I say, but would understand me and sympathize with me, and as we know from prior, and would rep, uh, from prior chapters, would represent me in the heavens. Turn over to Hebrews, uh, because I think this gives this verse a different spin. Go to Hebrews chapter 9. And then we'll go back to 7 as well. But go, go to Hebrews chapter 9. And go into verse 24 and 25. Actually, we'll start at 23. Therefore, Hebrews chapter 9 verse 23, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifice than these. For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Remember what Job had said before? If somebody was just there who could lay his hand on me and lay his hand on God, he'd already said this, remember? Somebody who sympathizes with me, that wouldn't twist what I say, would perfectly judge what I've done and where I've been and who I've been and, 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 and have empathy with me. Look at this. Would appear in the presence of God for us. Verse 25. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer uh, since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, 28. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who appear eagerly, uh, for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Okay, now hold on, hold on. We're just going to look at this for a minute. Let's go over to Hebrews chapter 7. I want you to look at verse 24 and 25 with me. But he, because he continues forever, in servanthood, by the way, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always uh, lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest, 26 was fitting for us, who's holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily sacrifices. Uh, keep going down there a little bit, right at the end. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Okay, you're going, okay, well, what are you 
saying, well, go over to 1 John. We're just kind of examining this a little bit. Chapter 2. My little children, verse 1, chapter 2, 1 John, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, here it comes, we have an advocate with the Father. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now, what are you talking about? Go back to Job. What are you talking about? Listen to this. Let the holy and inspired language of Scripture be retained. He entered by his own blood, G. Campbell Morgan writes. He who stands in the presence of God, catch this, as my witness, he who stands in the presence of God as your witness, as my witness, as you depend upon the blood of Christ, as he enters in by the blood, he, that person, bears the scars that tell of suffering unto death and testify that he is the redeemer. Sin being dealt with, listen to this, he stands in the presence of God, my witness, representing me as the Savior. To him I may go at all times for judgment, recording, judgment, passing all others by, careless in the last analysis of all other opinion, which may be mistaken through lack of knowledge, through the deceit of appearances. You're like, what are you reading about? Folks, listen, do you want to please God and not man? You ever heard that? What happens when we please man? We get jammed up. What happens when we're all concerned about likes and uh, followers and uh, who's, am I going to be the prom king or am I going to be the prom queen or, you know, just being, uh, you know, uh, validated by people as opposed to the one, the Lord. See, all of this talks about this. Job is saying, man, I could make it. If I knew I had a recorder, a judge in heaven, and all I could care about, one who sympathizes with me, even knowing I've been backstabbed, and then represents me to the creator of the heavens, I could make it through because I would know the, the heavens have been opened up for me, and now I'm just pleasing the one, and I want to be uh, known by the one and respond to the one, and the rest of all of this just sort of goes away. Wow. That pops up in Job out of the blue. It's not out of the blue, but kind of. It just goes boom. And you're like, whoa. And then he goes right back into it. My friends scorn me, Job 16, verse 20. My eyes pour out tears to God. Oh, that one might plead for a man with God as a man pleads for his neighbor. 22, for when a few years are finished, I shall go the way of no return. Now in Chapter 17, Job prays for relief. He asks gods to set him at liberty or to be free. My spirit is broken. My days are extinguished. The grave is ready for me. Are not mockers with me? And does not my eye dwell on their provocation? Uh, now put down a pledge for me with yourself. A pledge for me with yourself to take responsibility for another's well-being, you put up security. You, you know what you do when you co-sign for a loan? You make a pledge. 
You, you, you say, if something happens to that person, I got them. Don't worry. And here's the great part. The only reason somebody will let you co-sign is if you got the resources. You're not getting this. Because that's better than silence. See, he goes, now put down a pledge with me. Listen to this. With yourself. Just you, Lord. I know. See, it's popping out again. It goes in, it fades in and fades out. That's what suffering does. But here he just says, I know you have the ability and a resource. And if it's just you, and to heck with these guys. You're completely in the best pledge or security. I want to yoke myself up with you. Will you be the co-signer of my life? (laughs) Isn't that beautiful? He represents us to the Father. We fail. We get his righteousness, though. It's the greatest guarantee or pledge of all time. For you have hidden their heart from understanding, verse 4. Therefore, you will not exalt them. He who speaks flattery to his friends, even the eye of his children will fail. They flatter me, but they rip me. Verse 6, but he has made me a byword of the people. He talks now about how other people should have responded to his pain. And I have become one in whose face men spit. That's the one that gets me when I talk on Resurrection Day. I don't know why it is, but that gets me. When they spit on him. My my eye has also grown dim because of sorrow, verse 7. And all my members are like shadows. His body is a shadow of what it once was. Upright men are astonished at this, and the innocent stirs himself up against the hypocrite. Yet the righteous will hold to his way, and he who has clean hands will be stronger and stronger. Verse 10, but please come back again, all of you, for I shall not find one wise man among you. (laughs) My days are past, my purposes are broken off, even the thoughts of my heart, they change the night into day. The light is near, they say, in the face of darkness. If I wait for the grave as my house, if I make my bed in darkness, if I say to corruption, you are my father, and to the worm, you are my mother and sister, where then is my hope? Will they go down to the gates of Sheol? Shall we have rest together in the dust? And yet, we know, don't we know, in 1 Corinthians 15, go there. Look what happens for the believer in 1 Corinthians 15. What a great chapter, huh? 1 Corinthians 15, verses 19 and 20. It says this, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. (laughs) You're not staying in the ground. We read last time, to die is to continue to live, to die physically. Your life doesn't stop. 
Jesus tells us that in John 11. You continue on in life, but you're going to get a resurrected body also. You get it? Well, verse chapter 18, Bildad now, he's going to go for it. He's going to take a swing. Then Bildad answered and said, how long will you put an end to words? Gain understanding and afterward we will speak. Why are we counted as beasts and regarded as stupid in your sight? What are you calling a stupid, Job? You who tear yourself in anger must have been irritable, right? Of course he would have been. Shall the earth be forsaken for you, or shall the rock be removed from its place? The light of the wicked indeed goes out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. This talk starts speaking about death. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp beside him is put out. The steps of his strength are shortened, and his own counsel casts him down. For he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks into a snare. The net takes him by the heel, and a snare lays hold of him, verse 9, and noose is hidden for him on the ground, and a trap for him in the road. Terrors frighten him on every side, verse 11, and drive him to his feet. His strength is starved, and destruction is ready at his side. It devours patches of his skin. The firstborn of death devours his limbs. He's uprooted from the shelter of his tent, and they parade him before the king of terrors. Folks, listen. To the person who is outside of Christ, death is the king of terror. But for those who are in Christ, it's the great day because we get to go be with the Lord. But it's the king of terror, and this is describing the terror for somebody who's going to be eternally separated from God. They dwell in his tent who are none of his. Brimstone is scattered on his dwelling. Verse 16, his roots are dried out below, and his branch withers above. The memory of him perishes from the earth, and he has no name among the renowned. He's... This is another slap. A name continues on in the Bible lots of times through the kids. Job's kids have been killed or have died. And so he has neither son nor posterity among his people nor any remaining in his dwellings. Those in the west are astonished at his day as those in the east are frightened. Surely such are the dwellings of the wicked. And this is the place of him who does not go. It's the evil that suffer, not the righteousness. You're a sinner. And we all know it. That's what Bildad just said. Now, it's it's just over and over again, right? Now watch. So Job answers in chapter 19. He pleads with his friends here to stop tormenting them. How long will you torment my soul and break me in pieces with words? Folks, Words can either add to somebody's burden or lift somebody's burden. Do you know that? James, man, is a convicting book, isn't it? Man, it's convicting. Your mouth is the things that come out of there can destroy somebody and set forests ablaze and turn ships and all that sort of thing. The words that we say are important. And here, Job says, my goodness, folks, don't you know you're just adding to my burden? You're not telling me things that I don't know. These ten times you have reproached me, isn't that funny? 
It feels like 10 times, probably feels like 100 times. You're not ashamed that you have wronged me. And if indeed I have erred, my error remains with me. If indeed you exalt yourselves against me and plead my distress against me, know then that God has wronged me and has surrounded me with his net. In other words, if you guys are right, then God has wronged me because I have no secret sin. Did you catch that? He's the only one that knows it. There's no, nothing back there, even though you guys think of it. But if what you're saying is true, God really has wronged me. Because there is no secret sin. If I cry out, verse 7, concerning wrong, I'm not heard. If I cry aloud, there is no justice. He has fenced up my way so that I can't pass. And he has set darkness in my paths. He stripped me of my glory and take the cra- taken the crown from my head. Verse 10, he breaks me down on every side and I am gone. My hope he has uprooted like a tree. He has also kindled his wrath against me and he counts me as one of his enemies. His troops come together and build up their road against me. They encamp all around my tent. He just uses a picture one right after another, a criminal that's in court, a traveler that's been fenced in, uh, 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 darkness, Uh, there's uh, a dethroning of a king, there's uh, a a breaking down of structure, there's a tree uprooted, and there's a besieged city. And he has set darkness in my paths. Well, verse 13, he has removed my brothers far from me, and my acquaintance are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed, and my close friends have forgotten me. Wow, sounds fun. Verse 15, those who dwell in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I'm an alien in their sight. I call my servant, but he gives no answer. I beg him with my mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. (laughs) Wow. And we're laughing about that in some ways, but probably something was wrong, you see, physically. And I'm repulsive to the children of my own body. Even young children despise me. I arise and they speak against me. All my close friends abhor me and those whom I love have turned against me. My bone clings to my skin and to my flesh. And I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me. Have pity on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. He makes a diagnosis now. Oh, hang on. You guys are wandering here. I can tell. But here it comes, the best of the best, the crescendo. Why do you persecute me, verses 22, as God does, and are not satisfied my flesh? Verse 23, oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Here comes the ray of light. That they were engraved on a rock (laughs) with an iron pen and lead forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. Now watch this. Here's this flicker, this great testimony of faith, this great great statement of faith. And then next verse, 
whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Okay, that's still good, but watch this. If you should say, how shall we persecute him since the root of the matter is found in me? Be afraid of the sword for yourselves for wrath brings the punishment of the sword that you may know there is a judgment. Now let's talk about this for a minute. You've, you've, had, you've known this verse. You've... you've um, sang the songs, you've quoted this scripture, but I wonder how many of you know what the word there, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that my Redeemer lives. What is a Redeemer? Well, that word in the Hebrew, you ready for this, folks, is goel. Goel. It's the kinsman Redeemer that you find in Boaz in the book of Ruth. Now let's think about what a kinsman redeemer is. What is a kinsman redeemer? Well, a kinsman redeemer is many things. You could look uh, at Jesus Christ, of course. A kinsman redeemer is one that steps up and takes care of situations for somebody who is uh, in a bind, uh, that's the general way of saying it. Uh, you can look back in the Old Testament. It's found in the book of Deuteronomy. It's found in the book of Leviticus, uh, where uh, a kinsman redeemer uh, would do things for other people. The one great one is sort of like what we talked about on Sunday. Well, the one great one is Ruth and Boaz, but we talked about a kinsman redeemer of sorts on Sunday. There was this thing in the law called the law of Leverite marriage. Lever in the uh, Latin means brother-in-law. If a brother died, an oldest brother died, for instance, the next oldest brother would step up and have children with his wife so that his line, his name could live on. That first heir would be his. So it's a person who steps up and in this case, makes life fruitful. Also protects, also, listen, protects also because the widow in those times was unprotected. Also provides because in those days, if that widow was without children, then who would work and help her and do the things that they needed to do in that society to make money? It's, it's a person who steps up to the plate for protection, security, representation, fruitfulness, provision, and tons more. And so now when you go back here and you know that this word is Goel, kinsman redeemer. You go, wait a minute. For I know that my Goel lives. <laughs> you know what would be terrible? If you had a Goel and he was dead. <laughs> Are you catching it? You'd be like, wow. I'm in a bind. I've got a Goel, <laughs> kinsman redeemer, but he has no ability to help me. Here, our kinsman redeemer, uh, Job's kinsman redeemer, he wants you to see something, that you have a redeemer who is alive. 
And can you believe this is in the first book of the Bible? He shall stand at last on the earth. Our kinsman redeemer is so big, listen to this, that he's outside of earth. He's not here on earth, but he's going to come to earth. How, what? And, and not only that, he's going to stand at last on the earth. He's going to come in his first coming, of course. His first coming, he came as a baby, and, but he's coming back again, and he's going to rule and reign here. He's going to stand on the earth, and this is even more incredible. In my flesh, Job says, I'll see him. Which speaks right here, this vision of faith, that there's a Goel, an advocate, a supplier, a protector, one that I need. And he's going to come to this earth and in my flesh, I'm going to see God. Now, you know this because we talked about this last week. You got to know this in John 11. They're talking about their friend who's died, Lazarus. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Or no, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Sorry, I'm the resurrection. And yes, there's going to be a resurrection. But they're also, from the time that this person dies until the resurrection, there's a continuity of life. You'll never die. And the Bible speaks, and you could read about this on your own, that there's two very different resurrections facing mankind. John 5, I believe, is the other place. A resurrection unto life and a resurrection unto death or damnation. So what happens for the Christian? Well, the moment somebody dies physically, they're in the presence of the Lord. They don't stop dying, or they don't, they don't go and they, they die and then they come back to life. No, no, no. Life continues, and at some point, I believe that point is the rapture, you and I and we are going to get a glorified resurrection body. That's the first resurrection. And there other resurrections, we're not going to talk about those today, but the point that I'm trying to make to you is, here's the book of Job. He's in the middle of suffering, and he knows that his Redeemer, a Goel, lives. Not just any Goel, one that has to come to the earth. He's outside of the earth, and he's going to come to the earth, and he lives, and he will live, and he will live here, and I'm going to stand there and be with him. And I would say to you that the whole the whole summary of the Bible starts in a garden, ends in a garden, is the presence of God with men. He starts with men and women. He walks with them. He talks with them. Something bad happens, that sin and rebellion that separates us from God. But the Bible tells us in the last chapter of the Bible that he will live with us. He's not going to be in a tabernacle anymore. He actually will be with us and will have glorified, resurrected bodies. Now listen, maybe some of you right here today are going through a trial 
or a suffering or a hard place or a difficult thing. But catch this. We just talked about eternal life, a goel who comes from outside of the earth to stand here on the earth, that in my flesh I'll see God. We talked about this. We talked about it probably for the last five minutes. And listen, when you were filled up with that, I guarantee you, you were not thinking about your trouble. Isn't that interesting? Maybe we did it for two or three minutes. And the pain and the suffering, although it's still there, you're thinking about it because I'm reminding you about it, it went away. When you knew the reality of what the Bible tells us, that you have a redeemer, a goel, and that eternal life starts the moment you surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Watch this, though. <laughs> My family makes fun of me for this, but he's not only your goel, he's your redeemer. He takes you and puts you back into life in the place that you were always intended to be. That's what redeem means. <laughs> Just think of the coupon. The coupon does you no good on the counter. It only does good when you use it. And your Goel puts you back into life, and you're going to live life now as the way that you were intended to live, and then, listen, on in, in, into eternity with him. Man, oh man, does that take your troubles away. Let's pray. Well, Lord, Lord, these are complicated issues. People are hurting, struggling, suffering. There are people who've lost relationships or have people who have died or have lost careers or finances or there's some sort of disease or sickness in their lives. We all have it, Lord. Lord, help us to grow in this. Help us to be ones who receive your comfort to go out and comfort others. But as we said last week, it doesn't necessarily mean we'll be comfortable. Oh Lord, we accept that and want that because what we want is more of you and less of us. Lord, we want you to be our portion like the Levites. Help us to be there so that we can take our happiness and joy and keep it outside of our circumstances or away from our circumstances. We're happy and we're joyful because we know you by the blood of Jesus Christ and have your Holy Spirit in us. Help us to grow in all of that, Lord. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you guys and uh, have a great week. And if there's anything we could pray for, come on up and let's pray together. God bless you and stay in fellowship. It's great to see you.